Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn and Junkie, I'll be covering all ten entries in the Wizarding World franchise, as that's called, from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone all the way up to the brand new release, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, plus reviews for uh, the latest Mark Wahlberg and Sean Anders comedy, Instant Family, the newest movie from Steve McQueen, Widows, and the biopic of Marie Colvin, A Private War. Let's get started. Newt, you never met a monster you couldn't love. Let's take him. That's your brother? I think that might have been the best moment of my life. I'm going to get into more depth about what I like, what I didn't like, and more, and kind of break down the franchise as a whole in the discussion portion. So for right now, I'm going to give a brief uh, sort of one-sentence synopsis of what I think of each of the nine previous entries of, uh, of, the, of the Harry Potter franchise, Wizarding World, uh, so we can just focus straight on with the newest release, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Uh, so I rewatched all the previous uh, nine entries leading up to this. Uh, first off, uh, Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. I think it's good. I think Chris Columbus was a solid choice to direct uh, this movie. It, he, he's able to bring forth the whimsy of our introduction to this world. And it still holds up for the most part, you know, aside from a couple of bad CGI effects that, that, are, that are very of its time. But other, you know, for the, but for the story, for the... For as a you know as a kids movie, you could show this to kids nowadays, and they probably would be just as enraptured in it as the kids you know as kids back when it came out were. Chamber of Secrets, even better. Uh, Columbus was able to improve on what he started with with uh, Sorcerer's Stone, add in some more horror elements. This is where the horrors of the Harry Potter universe start to creep in, and some established uh, themes and lore uh, start to show up. I think it's an improvement. I think it's the better of the two Chris Columbus movies uh, upon rewatch. Prisoner of Azkaban still uh, believe that this is the least Harry Potter of the original series. I still hold true to the fact that this is the this is the red haired stepchild, the one who stands out the most as the ver- as the most out of sync with the series, uh, whereas Columbus's movies were very much of a tone, and even afterwards with um. Goblet of Fire, and then the rest directed by David Yates, they all had a consistent tone to them, to the universe. Azkaban is very inconsistent upon rewatch, and I think it's I think it's just because you've got a man who's trying to incorporate childhood, like, slapstick comedy in with uh, the more, you know, horrific and darker elements of the source material. And I feel like it forgoes the, forgoes the storyline of the book in favor of something, you know, entirely different. And I guess for a lot of people that works, for me, it's the most, you know, it is the it is the serious black of the franchise. The one who does sticks out from the family tree. Uh, anyway, Goblet of Fire, Return to Form. You know, it's a, I think it's a, a nice sort of return to what makes Harry Potter work as a series. And I think it's still, and I think it's a, it's a lot of fun to revisit. Uh, not my, it's like perfect middle ground. Not my favorite, not my least favorite, but a solid movie. 
Lord of the Phoenix, upon rewatch, is actually better than I remember. I remember the book being just the worst slog to get through. The movie is actually a vast improvement over the book, and it has definitely has some of the be- you know gr- best introductions to the franchise in the form of Bellatrix Lestrange and Dolores Umbridge. And I feel like um, uh, you know the movie is able to take what worked with the book and emphasize that over what didn't work, which is namely emo Potter. Emo Harry Potter is the worst, just the worst. Um, Half Blood Prince. Uh, gonna spoil it right now my my favorite movie of the harry potter franchise perfect personal favorite this is the one i would revisit the most this is the one i enjoy the most out of all of them and the only thing i can really think of that's bad is the, the infamous whitewashing of lavender brown which i'll get into in the discussion but uh, but aside from, i i think that's kind of if that weren't the case i feel like that may be slightly better and almost a five out of five you know, all things considered, but I feel like that in and of itself is definitely a mark against it. It's, it's if nothing else, it's an asterisk um, in the record books. And of course, uh, the two parts of Deathly Hallows. Part one, it's all set up, all set up, no punch, and it's and it and it sucks that it has to be that way. Uh, but yeah, it's it's right right at the same level as Azkaban for me, where I would never want to rewatch it again. Just because there's nothing to it. There's only like a couple of things that would be make it worth rewatching a two hour setup, and then the, otherwise it's it's worth it. Might you might as well skip it. Honestly, there's not enough to really garner your attention for that whole two hours when it's just set up. All set up, no payoff. But meanwhile, part two is all payoff. It's all payoff, and it's an all you know a massive two hour climax. And I feel like that part of it works. So once we get the climax, the climax is great. It's the setup that you, you that you feel sort of taken for. You know, you t- you feel like you've been taken for a ride that you that you haven't been given your due. And I feel like having a massive like three and a half hour movie, a la Return of the King, would have been a better option for them than than you know doing the money grab of splitting it into two books. Not to mention that that caused a terrible three three series run of young adult movies trying to, you know, squeeze money out of the audience by splitting the last book of the two movies. God, that was a terrible time. Anyway, uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2. Uh, uh, Deathly Hallows as a whole is a great movie. Deathly Hallows Part 2 is the better of the two just because it's all the climax parts. And, you know, the epilogue is still pretty stupid and doesn't really work in retrospect, but I'll get into that. I did re-listen to uh, my Fantastic Beast review, which I did was uh, what I did cover in my third ever super mega awesome movie review, Madness. That's when the first Fantastic Beast movie came out, and I liked it on my first watch. Upon rewatch, it's actually worse than the other Harry Potter movies. Like I would re- sooner rewatch Prisoner of Azkaban than watch. Fantastic Beasts again, just because it feels like all of the stuff that worked with Harry Potter was gone by this point. Even though it's the same author, I, I feel like J.K. Rowling has gone into full Lucas mode, and I'll you know once again break that more into the discussion. Uh, suffice to say that uh, Fa- Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them had a great premise, had a had a, had a cool idea, has cool ideas. And it's a terrible execution of those ideas. And it's a, just a middling movie. And it's further proof that prequels are, unless you know exactly what you're doing and you're able to make it more than just a reference fest, 
prequels are just an, an awful, awful idea. Um, I hear, uh, I bet apparently Red Dead Redemption 2 handles prequel, being a prequel better. So, it can, once again, having a prequel story can't work. You just have to know what you're doing. And, unfortunately, Hollywood normally doesn't have any idea what it's doing. And that brings us to The Crimes of Grindelwald. And this is just a massive retcon. All of this is a massive retcon. Like, here's the thing. When you rewatch, I binge-watched, over the course of the last week, every Harry Potter movie. In doing so, you see, specifically, Tom Riddle's lifespan in, in Goblet of Fire. You see that he was born in 1903, died in 1943. You know, basically born in, the, born in the beginning of the 20th century, died during the war. And he... And so, when you know that Tom Riddle would have, was, you know, was at, at Hogwarts in the 1910s... The fact that this takes place in the 1920s is throws you off a bit because Jude Law looks nothing like Michael Gambon. Like, they established that at this point in the timeline, Dumbledore looked like Michael Gambon already. He wasn't young, sexy Dumbledore. He was already old man Dumbledore. So... Why? I mean, the only reason, once again, the only reason they made him young, sexy Dumbledore is because it's Hollywood, and we got to make him young, sexy Dumbledore. And yeah, so that part's retconned. Um, The fact that Grindelwald looks nothing like Johnny Depp is retconned uh, because he shows up, and apparently he's still alive in the two thousands when Deathly Hallows takes place. Yet he looks nothing like. But Johnny Depp, so unless they're going to make the fifth movie where he turns into the actor who showed up in Deathly Hallows, I don't know what they're going to do with Grindelwald in this series. Because, yeah, he looks nothing like what they've established him. Basically, Billy Idol, some Johnny Depp's idea of a Billy Idol Halloween costume. Um, you know, retconning Nagini so that they diversify the cast. Hey, we had more Asian characters. Nagini was an Asian character. What do you mean she's just a snake? No, she's not. She's not a snake. She's a woman. She is all woman, thank you very much. Uh, what the, there's no reason to include Nagini in this story. There is the making her an Asian woman who becomes a, per, becomes a snake permanently feels very weird and off-putting, especially since she's considered a circus freak in this movie. Uh, the introduction of, of a black line of relations to the Lestrange family was awkward with not only awkward but also the fact that they introduced it by well you know, think of how think of how uh, 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 bl- uh, black people in history became part of white families I'll leave it at that so that so as not to spoil anything and also not to make you throw up because yeah yeah upon upon uh Thinking back to that, man, this is bad. Just all, all of the bad. Like, hey, we're adding more black characters. She's a victim of, oh God, why did, Why are we doing this? Why did you do this? Why are we doing this? Oh my God, why did you do this? Anyway, um, this is supposed to be about new Scamander, right? Um, and his Fantastic Beasts? Well, after the opening scene of him in his uh, apartment with his zoo 
uh, magical zoo in the wall in the basement. Um, and his you know uh, assistant who is mad horny for him, just out of nowhere, just mad horn dogging for Newt Scamander of all people, and for some reason, it, her only her, she's only in there for a for a scene, and her only reason for being in that scene is to is to drool all over Newt Scamander. It's so bizarre. Uh, at any rate, uh, the only recurring beast is the Niffler, which is brought back because apparently that's the fan favorite. And then they've added a ch- sort of Chinese lion dragon monster. No idea if it's. Ba- I'm assuming it's based on a real thing, but it's oh, you know, it only shows up twice, and it was part of the the French magic circus that they uh, infiltrate that they. Uh, that they are that they visit in the over the course of the plot, and then you know the Niffler only shows up like twice. Once to help locate uh, Tina from the last movie, Tina Goldstein, and the other time to be a be a plot device. So yeah, the Fantastic Beasts play like no real part of this franchise anymore. Like the, it's called the Fantastic Beasts, and I still I still. Adhere to the idea that this should have been a Newt Scamander, David Attenborough-style series of him going and researching uh, literal Fantastic Beasts, finding out the magical creatures of the world, and then inadvertently getting caught up, getting roped, a la India, like a sort of un, uh, a sort of um, reluctant Indiana Jones. He's off searching for magical creatures. He inadvertent, then he had inadvertently. Gets roped into whatever's going on in that area. So like he's off he's off in Africa to research you know like Mukele Mbembe or something like that or some other mystical monster that's off in the Congo and he in, inadvertently gets roped into maybe not that because that's uh, the Congo is not exactly the best place to visit in the nineteen twenties or any time before then. But get what I'm saying. He goes to Madagascar. He goes to Australia. He goes to China. He goes to. He goes to America. You know, he goes to other parts of America. He goes to South America to like the Amazon or something. He visits these fantas- fantastical places. Gets accidentally roped into the conflicts that are going on around that time within the magical world. And he, it's just like a re- he's a reluctant hero the whole time. He's like, I don't want to be here, but I'm here for the animals. I'll help you out if I can. But I'm here for them. I'm here to study them and help them out. I feel like that would make a much more interesting sort of side s- series to follow rather than. Newt Scamander becomes the new Harry Potter, which is essentially what this has become. Newt Scamander becomes the new Harry Potter, saving the world from the Dark Lord, and that I I don't find that interesting. Like that was cool when Harry po- when Harry did it because we built up to Harry being the savior of the world and fighter of the Dark Lord. With Newt Scamander, he was never established. Like they already established that Dumbledore is the one to defeat Grindelwald. They established that in the first movie, and. The fact that it's all about Newt fighting Grindelwald? I, no, that's not fun. That's, I don't care. And then that means that at some point Dumbledore is going to have to take over and fight Grindelwald, which means Newt Scamander is superfluous to his own franchise, ultimately, by the end of it, if they're going to keep true to canon. Otherwise, they're going to retcon it again and make Newt Scamander the hero, but Dumbledore takes the credit. <sighs> this movie. This movie's a hot, hot mess. Um, Johnny Depp's fine, like, he's not as obnoxious as he is as Jack Sparrow, but he's not exactly giving a stellar performance either. Uh, Ezra Miller as Credence is just kind of there, 
He's always kind of dead-faced the whole time, and then the ultimate reveal with him is really stupid. Zoe Kravitz is fine as Lita Lestrange, but once again, she's... Like, there's a line in the trailer, uh, You never let a monster you couldn't love. That's... They focus it on, like, he's talking about Credence. But... That's... But in the movie, in the context of that... The context of that line is about her. And... The, there she like did one monstrous thing and the way she describes it it literally comes down to I made a oopsie now I'm a monster how I, what how is that make, like it, it, like she's part of the Lestrange family that has already been established as one of the most horrific sociopathic dynasties in the Harry Potter universe why not make that the whole point? That she's secretly a sociopath who is hateful towards muggles and and believes wizards are superior and thinks that Newt is a coward and 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 he's all fighting his silly, playing with his silly animals and he's not gonna and he's not gonna join the fight when it really matters. Why not make her a, secretly a villain the whole time? Like because we were expecting that. I don't know. It's it's really bad writing ultimately. And there's a heel turn in this movie that's really bad and forced. Like, maybe it could have worked if they had set it up to work. Like, there's only, one, there's only like, one scene of them establishing how this heel turn could have worked. And then by the time the heel turn happens, you're like, I'm sorry, that don't make no sense. You know what also doesn't make sense? Making Grindelwald the good guy! I won't say how. I won't say how because that's spoilers. But suffice to say that at the very end, Grindelwald talks about something... Uh, and he alludes to the fact that if they don't intervene, something bad's going to happen. I'll leave it at that. I'm assuming if you ha- if you have seen it, you you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you can probably infer to what I'm what I'm what it's talking about. Suffice to say that Grindelwald is made out to be the good guy. Not you know I mean we know he's the bad guy because he's talking about wizard supremacy, but the way he is showcased. You make it sound like he's the good guy because he's about to pre- prevent atrocities. So why are you making him the good guy? Why would you make him out to be the good guy? That's the whole thing. You would not show us the, what they showed us if you intended for the for the guy showing it to be the good for, to be the bad guy. That's something good guys do. So you're basically saying we should be rooting for Grindelwald now. Right? Like, I'm not crazy, right? Uh, I don't want to spoil it either, just because I know people are going to get on me. I think I've already said too much, but point is, the writing of this is so bad. J.K. Rowling has gone off the rails, and I feel like if, if uh, we need new writers to take over this. Get people who are more level-headed about this, who aren't so far up their own ass with this universe, and then, and then just let J.K. just chill. Count her money, let her chill, and be a turf on Twitter again. I don't know. I'm, I've I've grown tired of J.K. Rowling, and she hasn't exactly ingratiated herself with with co- with competent writing as of late. So, yeah. Gr- point is, uh, Crimes of Grindelwald is the worst of the Wizarding World movies. But personally, if you enjoyed it, fine. Uh, you, you know, at least you got some enjoyment out of it. I got none. It was not only a slog to get through; it was one of the worst written of all of the movies. But it also was a 
ugly, ugly, unwatchable mess. Like, I talked about this on Stardust, and I'm not alone in this. There are several screenings, so I'm guessing it's the print where it's so dark and uh, and so cluttered with CGI with CGI madness, you literally cannot see what's going on. I had better luck discerning what was going on during the Battle of Hogwarts on my phone than watching Crimes of Grindelwald on a on a fake IMAX screen. That's bad. This is David Yates. He's capable of making a coherent movie. I don't know what's going on, what happened, but this is just, uh, just a, just a train wreck of a movie, and they're gonna have to do a lot of hard work to try and make up for it. What are you doing to my phone? Look at what this boy texted her. Is this that kid, Jacob? Hey, I saw the picture you sent her, Jacob. You're lucky I'll end your life right now, Carrot Top. We're gonna call your mom. You're going down today. So what do you think of that, Jacob? My name is not Jacob. What? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, if you have been listening for the last couple of weeks, you've noticed that I've called, that I've kind of dubbed certain picks of the week. You know, these are the, you know, the movies that that weekend in theaters were the ones that I would recommend people go see first and foremost. I think along with that, I'm going to include what I like to call the unpopped kernel. These are going to be the movies that are the, these are going to be the worst picks of the week. These are going to be the ones that I don't recommend anybody spend money seeing. And my unpopped kernel for this week is going to be Instant Family, the latest from Sean Anders and Marky Mark Wahlberg. And I know he doesn't like that terminology anymore. He wants to put that behind him. But let's be real. This this is an underwear model and attempted musician trying to take himself seriously as an actor, and he is not good at it. Like he is when he's when he has a good director working with him, he can do good things. But when he himself is in charge of helping to make the movie, he is normally terrible. So, and this is one of those where he got to be got to have on producer credit. And he worked with a guy who he helped, who who he was work, so who helped create one of the worst comedy duologies I've ever seen in the form of Daddy's Home, and now they're doing a whole new family dramedy sort of thing, and that is the inspired by a true story. Gag me that they the, when they threw that in the top of the at the front of the movie, I was like, no. Nah, 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 uh, not not gonna do this. And I even tried to do a munch along in the theater with it, but I got in trouble by one of the ushers who caught me. So uh, it it really is just an awful, awful movie. If you want to catch what the awfulness that I had to endure, then you can follow the the munch along for however long it took on uh, at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter. Suffice to say that yeah, it is it is just some of the worst in terms of comedy, in terms of family, like, family movies, in terms of drama. Ugh, it, it just is infuriating to think about. Because here's the thing. Having a story about a, a foster family trying to come together and the struggles they face in terms of the kids, don't, not all the kids necessarily feel like that's their home. They feel like they want to be with their their birth mom. They, you know, they, they don't feel... They're still not feeling loved by the foster family, even though the foster family is doing everything they can to show that they that 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 kid is loved, and 
And that, you know, that I'm sure there are really great dramas centering on that. I think like maybe even things like Stepmom uh, with Julia Roberts or, or, or Stepmother. You know, whatever the one with Julia Roberts is where she's the, she's the new wife uh, and she has to try and ingratiate herself to the family. Things like that can work. And, there are, and the grains for that working are here. But this is the guy who directed That's My Boy. He is not capable of making a good movie even when it's handed right to him. This is basically a pre-made storyline. He doesn't have to do anything or to, to make it work. And he decides, but what if I add my own thing to it and it's a pile of shit? Well, uh, I'll have to edit that. I'll have to throw in a little thing for that one. I'm going to leave that in. But yeah, so if I say it's a pile of crap, it's a pile of dookie. It is it is a dog turd that he put on a quiche and he said, look, I made a thing. You ruined a thing. You took something that was fine enough that you didn't have to do anything and you would have, and it would have been fine and you took a dookie on it and it sucks. Thanks, Sean Anders. You suck at this. Uh, so yeah, we've got Macky Mac, Macky Mac, Macky Mac, I'm I'm not good on accents. I tried. If you're uh, if you listen to the latest uh, Living in the Stacks, you've heard me butcher a Scottish, a Scottish accent and try, and that ended up turning Russian by the end of it. So, hi, I'm Macky Mac. This is. This is what I do when I act. I get all I get all intense and stuff. Look at me. I'm being I'm being all dramatic and stuff. Look at me. I'm Maki Mark Wahlberg. I punched the Vietnamese dude and and put him in the hospital when I was in my twenties. I'm such a cool guy. I'm a role model. Aren't I the coolest? Look at my schedule. It's all full of stuff. It's all full of crazy stuff. I'm a crazy person. I talk to the plastic plants. Hello, Mr. Plant. We're not here to hurt nobody. If I talk to you nice and sweet like, maybe then you won't kill us with your magic spores. See, he got mad at Saturday Night Live. For that sketch that made fun of the way he talked. And yet he consistently proves that that is in fact the way that he talks for the most part. Like when he's in this movie. um, Like when he tries to talk in this movie. He's he's got that same cadence. He is not a good actor. He is the same actor in every movie that he's in. I'm I'm trying to do the accent now. I don't know if I'm good at it. I'm sure the actual Bastonians are going to think. Man why is... Why is this douchebag coming over? Now I'm going to the Jersey. I'm going to the Jersey all of a sudden. Oh, I'm terrible at this. Oh, this is going off the rails. At any rate, Marky Mark sucks. And Rose Byrne is the worst she's ever been. Rose, and that's the thing. She is not all that different from when she was like in Neighbors or, you know, some one of those other sort of, you know, stoner comedies or raunchy comedies. She's not acting too differently, but what she is given to say, and what her character is given to do, is some of the most obnoxious and mean-spirited gunk that I've ever seen, and it makes me wonder, is she all that good? Was Rose Byrne ever funny? Because this movie is making me think she was never funny. She has taken all of that goodwill that that was there from her previous works and said, nah, screw that. I'm going to be a dick. Because that's what this movie is. Hey, I'm going to be a dick. The movie. Also, we've got a nice family drama at the end. That's the other thing. This whole, the first act of this movie 
is everybody is a dick. Everybody is awful. Everybody sucks and the world needs to burn. That's what this movie is. There is a recurring blindside reference in this movie. That's right. There's an entire character whose whole point is to reference the f- reference the fact that the blind side exists. And everybody in the movie does it. And, and the whole point of her character is to remember, hey, remember the blind side? Remember how stupid that was? Yes, we do. We don't need you to remind us how stupid the blind side was. <sighs> like, she literally opens with, I want... I want a, an athletic boy, preferably African-American, to, for a scholarship. She literally describes the plot of the blind side! This movie, man, just... Just awful, awful stuff. And then, by the time the kids enter the picture, it's a wacky family comedy, and everybody's being all silly and random. Oh my goodness, wacky hijinks ensue. It's like a sitcom! But everybody's still a dick. Literally everybody is still the biggest asshole in this movie, even after the kids come into the picture. And we're supposed to act like we care because, oh, but we gotta, but they've gotta become a family. We gotta make sure this family becomes one whole. You know, these disparate parts become a whole family. <coughs> Gag me. I don't care if these people become a family because the pe- because the parents are assholes and the kids are kids are little dicks. So who cares? Who cares if they become a family? Everybody's an asshole. The only real bright spots in this whole movie are the little girl playing Lita. There's Lita, Juan, and Lizzie. Uh, Lizzie being played by Isabel. Uh, what is her name? Uh, she she played. Uh, the minor character in uh, Transformers 5 alongside Marky Mark, and she's supposed to be playing... Um, it, it, she's supposed to be playing um, Dora the Explorer coming up. Isabel... Isabella Moner. Um, yeah, she plays... Uh, she plays the oldest daughter, uh, Lizzie, who is 15... And she, and and she's you know she's she's an angsty teenager who doesn't play by your rules, man. You're not my real mom. She's every stereotype. There is no real character to her, other than the fact that she she is also Hispanic, and so she will speak to her brother and sister in Spanish. That's all she's got going for her. She's an t- angsty teenager, and she speaks Spanish. Uh, Juan is a like a almost is almost like. Um, some, like, he almost has some kind of anxiety disorder where he feels like everybody's going to hit him if he does something wrong, but he's also clumsy. So it's like, he, he's clumsy, he knocks something over, and he feels like he's going to get hit. And, yeah, that's, that's sad. That's not, they, they play it as a joke, but that's sad. That's, like, depressingly sad. They're basically saying, hey, this kid is a po- is suffering from child abuse. Isn't that hilarious? But, no, that, that's not, that's not a joke. That's, that's depressing. Why are you depressing me, movie? Uh, and then Lita, when she's not being a spoiled brat all of a sudden, is a, is just a generic little girl. So she'll say cute random girl thing. Cute, not even cute random girl things. Cute random, like, m- little kid things. Like, 
sixth, seventh grade things where she's silly and random and great and kooky. She kind of reminds me of like a lesser um, kid who plays cat. You know the kid who plays cat bug um, and how he'll appear in like various online media and like he was the muffin uh, in ASDF where he's like, somebody kill me. And he's like, he's got that perfect voice where no matter what he says, it's adorable. She's kind of like that, but what they're giving her to say is obnoxious and not funny. So when she does get to be, you know, cute, it's it's like, okay, how do you hate that cute little kid? It's a cute little kid. You're not going to hate it. It's a, Even in this terrible movie, that's a cute kid. And then, of course, Wonder Woman, for this movie, swoops in, saves the day from be- and saves it from being complete and utter trash, Margot Martindale. Margot Martindale comes in to just be amazing. And I wish this movie was about her instead of Marky Mark. Because Marky Mark is a, is a, is a douchebag. Rose Byrne's an asshole. Her family are the worst people in existence. And Margot Martindale's the only saving grace. Uh, thank you for her. Thank you for Margot Martindale. Whoever, who's ever out there. And so that whole second act is a sitcom. And then the third act turned into freaking Kramer versus Kramer level of family drama. Where it's like, you know, all sad and depressing that, oh no, the, the mom's out of prison and she gets to, she might be able to take the kids back. And oh no, they've started to like each other now. Maybe they were going to be a real family, but now they may not be anymore. Oh no, what's going to happen to them all? What's going to happen to our little family? And it's so unearned. None of that heartfelt emotion and drama is ever earned. Because the whole movie was spent with a bunch of assholes doing sitcom jokes from the 1980s. And then acting like we get the, they get to be an el- like a really dramatic episode of SVU or something. Or a really dramatic episode of, um, maybe not SVU, but like Law and Order. Or, um, you know, or like something, something, something from a Lifetime movie. Even Lifetime movies at least earn their attempt at being dramatic because they're not trying to be stupid the whole time. This movie spent half of its runtime, if not two-thirds of it, being obnoxious and unfunny. And then it tries to pull a Kramer versus Kramer at the end like we're supposed to give a damn. And I'm here to tell you, no, you didn't earn that movie. You didn't earn the right to be heartfelt and, and wholesome. Because you spent the rest of... You wasted so much of my time being unwatchable trash that you do not get to be wholesome and heartfelt. Whatever whatever try, message you're trying to, spe, trying to spread of, oh, you should go and adopt and take care of foster kids and there's so many kids in the foster care system, we should all do our part. No, you don't earn that. You didn't get that. You don't get those brownie points. You don't get to be an asshole for most of your runtime and then say, I did, I did the, I did my part of the project. Give me a gold star. No, you didn't earn that. You didn't really earn that. You were a dick the whole time and then you just tug at our hearts, tugged at our heartstrings like we're, you know what the perfect example of this movie is? Isabella, Isabella Moner's whole character in this movie. She's a dick throughout the entire her entire runtime of the movie, but by the end she's trying to tug at our heartstrings like she really gave it her best, and like this is some other movie that we're watching that we somehow changed channels to Lifetime or Hallmark, and we've got an entirely different movie that we're watching instead of like Spike TV or whatever they're calling it now, Fuse, Par- no, it's the Paramount Network. Instead of like comedy, well, instead of like Comedy Central or some some other kind of like trashy 
channel. Like, trying to think, like, what would be comparable to the level of immaturity and non-humor that you would... Fox. Fox TV. Like, we were watching some really crappy Fox show, and all of a sudden we changed over to the Hallmark channel, and it's like, oh no, we're an entirely different movie now. Now you have to feel bad for us. No, you did not earn that. You didn't earn the right to be taken seriously as a wholesome family drama about the foster care system. You didn't earn it. You don't get a gold star. You don't get a gold star. You win nothing. You lose. Good day, movie. Now, the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. From my unpopped kernel to my pick of the week. That's just how it worked out. Our other wide release this weekend was Steve McQueen's latest feature film. Uh, he's been making mostly short films in the meantime since 12 Years a Slave. So this is his return to theaters uh, in his, since, retur- since 12 Years a Slave in 2012. Yeah, 2012. I will, no. 2013. Yeah, 2013. Um, and yeah, it, he hasn't missed a beat. Dude is one of the best writer-directors of our time. I have yet to see Shameless or uh, Hunger, I believe, uh, his previous movies, the ones we did with Michael Fassbender. But between this and 12 Years a Slave, dude, dude is like the best actor we've got work Not actor, but like best director we've got working. He really, he is, a, he is such a powerful, emotional, just powerhouse of a director. And... Combine him with the writing, you know, with with uh, Gillian Flynn, the writer of Gone Girl, and you've got you've got you've got damn near masterpiece in your hands. It's not it's not perfect. I think the problem is it kind of drags. It's a slow burn, so there are points where it kind of drags its feet a little bit. So it's not something I like. It's so it's not like as taut as a thriller as it could be, but at the same time, I don't mind. It's not like it's not, it never it keeps the movie from being a five star, just to being a four and a half out of five star. You know, it's not a perfect ten out of ten. You still you know I had to dock a couple of points there just because yeah it's not it's not entirely perfect. I wouldn't call this a perfect movie for me, um, but at the same time it's a damn good movie. It's it's one of the best movies to come out this year, and I you know I marked down as such that is this is going to be one of my picks for uh, favorite of the year because it is it is so good. Uh, the pr- the premise here, if you haven't caught in the trailers, is Steve McQu- uh, uh, We've got a pretty diverse uh, cast of main characters, namely Viola Davis as uh, the these are all widows for the most part, except for one, which. Uh, they don't reveal till halfway through the movie. Until when, by the time you meet her, you kind of catch on that she's not. She may, she may or may not be a widow. They don't go into it, but she's not one of the widows uh, of the title. Um, but we've got three main widows. Um, I don't know if that's spoiling it too much because I mean the plot. It's not really spoiling the plot. It's spoiling the fact that they're not all four widows. You know, and, but that that that. You know, the fact that they're not all four weirdos doesn't matter because that's not like a plot point or anything. It's just a matter of the fact. It's just a, it's just a, what brought them together. Namely, that Viola Davis's husband, Liam Neeson, had a team of of um, robbers that he worked with. One was uh, John Bernthal, who who's married to. Let me get her name. I didn't rec- I didn't really recognize her. 
but um, but she's the blonde one. She's the blonde one uh, in the movie, and uh, then you've got uh, I didn't catch who the other guy was here. Widows. We've got Liam Neeson, John Bernthal, Manuel Garcia Rulfo, Manuel Garcia Rulfo. Uh, I believe he play he plays um uh he was he was also uh, Vasquez in Magnificent Seven uh Sicario Day of the Soldado he was he was a uh, Gallo and then he was Benjamino Marquez on Murder on the Orient Express uh, he plays Michelle Rodriguez's husband and then you've got a a uh, fourth guy who I didn't. I, I think he's a uh, Coburn Goss is the fourth guy in the crew. He was um, Father Leon in Batman v Superman and Man of Steel, and he's married to I believe. Oh my God, that was Carrie Coon. That's who Carrie Coon was in this movie. Uh, yeah, local local girl done good. Carrie Coon, also from Gone Girl. Uh, she plays the fourth widow in the movie, but who doesn't take who doesn't take part in the heist? Uh, I won't say what ha- what how ha- to say her overall role in the plot because it, it gets it gets crazy over the over the runtime. Thing you, you start to learn the what's really going on behind the scenes, and it's like oh oh hell man, this is this is craziness. But you so yeah, you've got Viola Davis, you've got. What's her name? I saw. I just saw Elizabeth Debicki, who is an Australian, who is um, Polish and Irish descent. Uh, mother's Australian. She was Jordan Baker in The Great Gatsby, and I, that's who she was. She was Aisha in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, and she played. She I didn't recognize her at all in this movie. I, I don't know if she's in other stuff that I would have seen her in, but. Her as the sort of ditzier, you think she's established as being ditzy, but then you get to realize the inner workings of her mind and what she, you know, she, you, the depth of her character overall. So she's not just a, an airhead, but that's how she comes off at first. But yeah, you know, once again, it, by the time the end of the movie rolls around, you see just how you see all of these women's strong suits. Uh, yeah, so you got Vila Davis, um, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and then, uh, you know, current up-and-comer, what was her, what was her first name? Uh, why is it not, she's not showing up, she's like on the poster, but they put her like way down in the cast list on IMDb because she doesn't show up until like partway through Act 1, almost into Act 2. Uh, where is she? Where is she? Uh, Cynthia Erivo. That's it. it was, I almost got it. Uh, Cynthia Erivo, uh, who was just in uh, Bad Times at the El Royale and who's slated to play Harriet Tubman upcoming, is, is the fourth member of the crew. And she gets, she, you know, she basically knew, uh, she was basically a tertiary character who got uh, brought in because of she's in the same spot as a lot of these women are. Namely, that even though Viola Davis is a very high class, this all takes place in Chicago. Uh, Viola Davis is is a, is a very well to do, high class uh, society woman who um, was never really part of the down and dirty stuff that her that Liam ne- her husband Liam Neeson took part in. And after he died, she gets 
she she's starting to get um blackmailed not black not so much blackmail but like uh um hustle not, not even hustle but like but uh basically um Daniel Kaluuya and Brian Tyree Henry uh are the Manning brothers I believe they're brothers um pretty sure yeah Jamal and Jatem Manning uh Brian Tyree Henry is Jamal who is running for alderman of the 18th ward of Chicago. So he's running for local office against uh, Colin Farrell, who is the who is the grand you know who's been in like a, a lineage of uh, long running aldermen for that ward. So he's kind of like an established politician, even though he's he's got issues with one you know following in his father's footsteps and his grandfather's footsteps. And meanwhile, he's being challenged by Jamal Manning, who it turns out has some, he always part of it, he was also involved in some gang, maybe not even gang activity, but definitely like criminal activity. And so uh, Jamal and Jatain start um, pressing Vila Davis for money that was stolen by Liam Neeson in the, in the heist that went bad that got them all killed. And so Vila Davis and, ends up finding... Um, the plan, the uh, Liam Neeson's plans for the for for a final heist, uh, you know, for what would have been his next heist, and and she decides, well, I owe these, it will, I owe, you know, I'm being pressed for all this money, and these other widows are, you know, are struggling to make ends meet after their husbands have died, and we have to work together in order to pull this off. Because otherwise, she's going to be taken down, and they're probably going to come after the other widows next. Even though uh, they're focusing mo- mainly on Viola Davis because she has the most money, uh, they definitely are going to come after the other members of the crew if they don't get their money. And so you've got two crooked uh, candidates for aldermen fu- yeah, in a runoff election after Robert Duvall, who plays uh, Colin Farrell's father, resigns. And while they're that well in the lead up to that election to that runoff election, um, or that special election, whatever the terminology, I think runoff is a different uh, terminology. So yeah, that special election in the lead up to that, the the one candidate is is pressing the is pressing Viola Davis for two million dollars, and the only way she concedes to she can see to to pay back her the debt that her husband has accrued is to pull off one last heist. Oh, well, one first and last heist that uh, and she gets a team of her, her, the widows of his her her you know, of Liam Neeson's crew uh, to basically come together to pull off this heist in the hopes of finally getting these getting these guys off her back and clearing them all uh you know of their debts. And meanwhile you've got like Michelle Rodriguez wanted to run a shop, but it ult- but it got taken away from her because her husband was bad with money. And Elizabeth Debicki is struggling to make ends meet because her you know she doesn't have a provider and she never really had like a career path in mind. And so her mom is like trying to push her down these more lurid ways of making money. And she really isn't sure what to do for money at this point in time. And then you've got uh, Cynthia Erivo, who plays you know a struggling single mom. And they don't say if she's a widow or not, but she you know she's the one outside of the main crew, but who is in the same you know who's in the same spot of trouble in terms of money and is is capable and willing to help them out. And it's a, like I said, it's a slow burn, 
But damn, is it a, is it a good movie? Kaluuya is a, an amazing, like, you wouldn't think being the kid, being like the kid from Get Out and um, Black Panther's uh, friend, you know, Black, Black Panther's best friend and like general in Black Panther that he would be like an intimidating, almost like gangster figure. But the dude is menacing. The dude is like stone cold killer in this movie. Kaluuya is the guy to watch. And then you've got Brian Tyree Henry, who was great as a sort of conniving, almost kingpin-esque figure who's trying to make his power play in politics. Meanwhile, you've got uh, Colin Farrell as the sort of pampered, posh kid who's the son of the previous alderman who's basically trying to take his dad's job uh, so that he can keep it in the family. And he's not sure what he want, what, what he really wants to do with it, but he know he you know he's getting he's kind of get, he's kind of antsy about following in his dad's footsteps for again you know like 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 his dad did before him, and it's all really interesting and well well choreographed sort of corruption and crime and and like see the seedy underbelly of Chicago, and it it it's phenomenal. Uh, exercise in uh, in sort of like the drama that leads into a heist, and then the heist itself is when, when it kicks off, it's like a it's like a dynamite, it's like a stick of dynamite. Once that flame, once the wick, once the wick burns out and it hits, and it hits the payload, boom! It's intense. So I won't. I think I'll I think I'll leave it at that just because I don't want to give too much else away. But you know. Trust me, I don't think you'll be able to see... It'll take you a while to kind of catch on to things. And, but, and you know, it, it doesn't play you along. It doesn't try to overall surprise you. It, it keeps you going, but not so much that you're like, oh, come on, you know, where it kind of pulls the rug out from under you, for the most part. I really think... This is Steve McQueen's, one of his best. Gillian Flynn, I, I'm definitely interested to see if she does more screen work because I think she's capable... I mean, she's already proven herself with Gone Girl. This is an extra sort of, like, feather in her cap of, like, hey, look what I did. I helped co-write this. And you see elements of Gone Girl in it, too. So she's definitely got a style to her. And it works. It all works. It's not something... Once again, Steve McQueen is, I think, so intense of a director that I could never really re-watch his stuff. 12 Years a Slave is, like, Schindler's List. I cannot rewatch it unless I'm like in that headspace of like, okay, I can appreciate this movie and its quality. Because if I'm not in, if I'm not emotionally stable enough, I will not be able to take rewatching that movie. This isn't that bad. This isn't like emotionally draining, but it's definitely like, it, you know, it definitely keeps you going. And the and it's a it's a ooh, it's a ride. So this is my pick of the week. This is going to be one. This is going to. There's going to have to be a lot to come out in the next next month or so if this is going to be taken kicked off the the my favorite for the for the year because this was that good and I and so yeah if this is playing near you you got to check it out. You have a god given talent for making people stop and care. To being alive. Yeah. I see it, so you don't have to. If you lose your conviction. What hope do the rest of us have? Maybe I would have liked a more normal life. Maybe I just don't know how. I ended up saving the best for last this week because... Not even the, be the best two for last, I should say. Because, um... 
because yeah, Widows is my pick of the week, but A Private War is is also a, a stellar movie. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with, this is the biopic of Marie Colvin, who is a who is basically one of the best war correspondents we've had in the in the 21st century. She they mentioned she has been doing it since 1983, but they focus specifically in this movie on her coverage of the Sri Lankan Civil War, in which she lost her eyesight in her left eye and ended up. Uh, gaining in a very famous eye patch, which she wore until her death, until you know, right up until her death. Uh, but when you saw pictures of her and, and interviews of her, she was wearing the eye patch. And from the Sri Lankan Civil War in 2001 up until her death, in covering the Syrian Civil War in Holmes, uh, where she was taken out. Uh, and this isn't spoilers because it's actual history. Uh, and you know, these are actual events that you can look up. Uh, but basically, she dies in a, one of the bomb strikes uh, in Holmes, covering the fact that Assad was lying about lying to everybody, direct, you know, just flat out lying, not you know, not not kind of misleading, not not um, kind of obfuscating the truth. No, straight up lying when he said he wasn't. He was only targeting terrorists because she documents all of the atrocities he was he was doing in the to the people of Holmes in Syria. And that's kind of the emphasis of this movie, is the fact that it takes somebody like a Marie Colvin and like the other war correspondents that are out there, that that aren't getting name recognition, that are out there documenting what is going on in these chaotic situations, because otherwise these stories will be left undocumented and be lost to history. They're writing about the homes burned and destroyed, the people killed in the crossfire, the people suffering from lack of food and water and medicine. They're writing about the true horrors that face the human race in times of war. And they are out there to remind us that war is not something to be glorified and celebrated. War is a war itself is a crime. And the fact that we continue to not only pr allow it but promote it, it showcases where our priorities are at and that they're in such the wrong place. But at the same time, that the also documents, like, one of the sequences is a very true story of how, leading up to, the de to his death, uh, Marie Colvin actually got to sit down with uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, you know, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, just before he was finally uh, killed by his people during the Libyan Civil War. And... She got to actually sit down with him and have an interview with him leading up to that. And then while they were there in Libya is when they found him dead in the sewer. And that ended up in her article in a very famous line. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's but it definitely is like almost perfect um, journalistic sort of style writing. Uh, actually, let me pull it up because I, I don't want to let it go unspoken for those who maybe because I don't know how many people will get the chance to uh, see this movie uh, I know it's all, it was only it was playing in fewer theaters than um, than the uh, than the widow than widows was and especially with crimes of Grindelwald out um, uh, shoot let me see I'm trying to find her article on Gaddafi Come on. Come on. 
That's bad. Oh, wow. There's an article of a couple of years ago in the Post about how um, the attack on Marie Colvin was not, uh, not, was not random. She was definitely being targeted by the, by the Assad regime. And I believe that. I mean, they were all, they definitely mentioned in the movie that they had to be careful so as not to make themselves targets of drone strikes. Um, trying to find. Where's the. There was. God, you, you'd think it would be. It wouldn't be that hard to find the article where she got to, where she got to, where that was showcased. Like that's the nice thing is that the end credits of the movie are are showcasing all of her articles that she wrote for the London Times, and now I cannot find the one article that I want to quote. All right, Marie. Colvin Gaddafi article 2012. Let's try that. Come on. Marie Colvin experienced war. These are articles about Marie Colvin after she... Oh, no, that wasn't 2012. That would have been 2011, I believe. Jeremy. That's her obituary. The Vanity Fair article that inspired the movie. Uh, tributes, tributes, tributes. I'm trying to find her articles. I wish there was like a collection of her articles that I could find. Like, can I also, is there a way I can list of Marie Colvin articles? Private War, articles by Marie Colvin. There we go. Uh, Escape from Chechnya. Oh, she wrote about Chechnya. Yeah, see? See, this is, these are the final dispatch from Holmes, the battered city. Oh, she even wrote about freaking Julian Assange. I'll have to read that article at some point. Wait, that's it? That's all you've got? Oh, come on. Freaking. That's all they've got. Come on. There's, there's, a, there's a, there's a, there's, it was such a great line, too. Ah. It's bugging me so much. Uh, at any rate, um, yeah, this she has led such an interesting life, and this movie does its best to try and capture that. This is directed by Matthew Heineman, who documentary documentary fans will know him as the director of Cartel Land and City of Ghosts. So he's actually covered war zones and war, you know, sim, you know, warlike zones. I mean, I you, it's not classified as a war zone, but I mean. The cartel um, violence in Mexico could easily be classified in the same vein as a war zone. But, yeah, he this is his narrative feature film debut. And I think he does a decent job. He definitely nails the uh, aesthetics of trying to recreate the violence that uh, Murray Colvin witnessed and endured. And he's able to showcase... Her drama and her 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 her, tra- her trauma, like that's the whole thing. Is that the underlying theme of this movie? Is that while Marie Colvin is doing amazing work, telling everybody about these atrocities that are going on in the world, 
because she is witnessing so many of these atrocities firsthand, she is suffering from the same level of post-traumatic stress as those as a soldier would. She's alongside so many soldiers, but she even you know she tries to play it off like I'm not a soldier, I can't suffer from PTSD. So it's like she's trying to play off the fact that she is suffering from this from this untreated trauma, you know, from the from the symptoms of PTSD. Because she has witnessed trauma. She has endured trauma. And she has she never took the chance to deal with it. All she did was drink and smoke ultimately. And it kind of kept her from really... You know... Per, and I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that is played up. But it definitely showcases that... The, all the sort of self-destructive behavior that Marie Colvin had in when she was, in, when she was a civilian... Compared to the sort of stone cold professionalism she had in the field, and yeah, the final scene, the final uh, cli- you know, the climax of the movie, her actual like interview with um, uh, Anderson Cooper, which I'm not sure if they took word for word from the from the from um, from that from that period or not, but yeah, she it, she she broadcasts. Through Skype from Holmes, uh, Syria, to to re, re, to kind of emphasize that this the, these things are happening. The the Saad regime is lying to us. This is what's really going on, and it, something needs to be done about it. And unfortunately, it's because she stayed behind and did that 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 she that they finally were able to get to her, and they find because if they had left. And were able, like she could have brought, she may have been able to broadcast from a safer location, but she was so determined to just get that out there, get her story, get that story out there, and let people know that this is what's happening. And she was so concerned with the, with the civilians being ruined by whose lives have been ruined by this war that she wants to do so much to help them that it ultimately leads to her death. And, you know, she finally, you know, the wars finally caught up with her and she finally got taken down during her coverage. And it finally, you know, she, like all her time as a war correspondent, she was able to survive so many war zones. And yet it was the Syrian war zone, the one that she described as one of the worst she has witnessed, that finally brought, that finally ended her. And it, it and it's such a tragic scene, scene to witness. And... I will say it kind of kind of follows a lot of the problems with with bi- making biopics. There are a bunch of amalgamated characters. There's one that works. There are a couple. Of, a bunch of them were journalists that were not based on real journalists, but were amalgamations of the journalists she would meet in the field covering these uh, covering war. And then they played up Stanley Tucci's role in the movie, where he and even then he's barely in it. He Stanley Tucci plays a businessman who kind of becomes a lover. For uh, Marie Colvin uh, toward the end of her life, and they kind of play up his importance a bit because he she he was definitely yeah you know, I was definitely a part of her life, but I feel like they played up like that was her last love, and eh, it's a bit that's a bit much uh, for those who actually knew what was going on with her. So those are parts that I'm will, I'm willing to like knock knock it off too much. I'm not going to say like that ruined the movie. It's just yeah, this is what Hollywood does. It amalgamates characters to make more, make more uh, recurrent. You make it one singular character instead of having disparate characters. That way, they can consolidate actors to play the same role. Um, 
And then, like, playing up certain aspects of, like, the romance thing with Stanley Tucci. Oh, by the way, uh, Rosamund Pike, I forgot to mention her this whole mo- review. Point, because uh, <laughs> that's the thing. This is her movie. She carries this movie as Marie Colvin. And she nails it. I cannot imagine a better, a- like, I'd have to see the the entire list of nominees for act- Best Actress in a Drama or in a feature, or for you know, for a drama for Golden Globe and uh, and feature film, you know, best actress in a, in a, in a leading role for the rather um, awards shows to really like. I'd have to see the other the what these academies will think is the best performance of of this of 2018 laid out in order to ju- really judge who ge- who gave the best performance because right for right now, Rosamund Pike is my go to like. This this lady nailed it. She had the she just covered the wide wide range of emotions from from the trauma and the from and the depression to the you know, to the d- determined nature of Colvin in the in the face of war and how, how her trying to keep herself together while she's documenting all of these things that are going on. Rosamund Pike is just a powerhouse in this movie. She's the reason to see it. And, yeah, um, if you get the chance to, definitely check this out. It's, and if nothing else, look into Marie Colvin, find, see if you can find her articles. She is... There won't be another one like her. She is... She, we lost such a powerful journalist with her death. And it's very... And, and, I, and I just hope that there are others willing to do what she did. A, a risk the, to risk your life to present what's the truth of what's going on behind the scenes and and with you know and within the chaos of war is it it, it is it is the one of the highest forms of bravery a civilian can do. So that about does it for the reviews this week. Uh, let's get in. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about that Wizarding World of Harry Potter. hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying I didn't really get a chance to do this last time uh, Fantastic Beasts came out because that was a massive week for me. I forget what all I reviewed, but I was looking at a massive amount of of movies that episode. In fact, let me pull it up. Yeah. Hold on. We want November. There we go. 
We've got Fantastic Beasts, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Edge of Seventeen, Shut In, and Moonlight. So there were like five movies I reviewed that that week, and I never really got the chance to break. I didn't want to, you know, go over long and break try to break down the Harry Potter franchise uh, that same episode. Whereas this time we only got four new releases to really talk about. So let's get into it. Um, Harry Potter. It's it's something, all right. It really is something, and I've got to say, re- on, upon revisiting, most of the movies are above average to solid four stars. Like I don't think the, most of the movies average about a four star for each one, from the Christopher Columbus all the way to the Deathly Hallows. They all average out at four stars. They kind of peak at four and a half, and then they don't. They only and before Crimes of Grindelwald never got below a three and a half. So these are, you know, these are exception. These are all m- above average to exceptional uh, fantasy movies, and I do think that J.K. Rowling created a massive uh, world that really. That and I think the thing is, the fans have done so much more in helping to build this world and try and do so much more with it that I think Rowling herself is even capable of, you know. I think that's. I think the uh, the Lucas comparison may feel like you know sacrilege to uh, Potterheads, but I. He, but I. But that's the thing. When you look at it in the vein of here's the creator of this massively powerful and profitable and beloved franchise, and the longer they, and one you know that's the thing. Once they gain control. Of the franchise, once they have all the control, once they don't, once they don't have other creative forces to help bring their vision to life, they the pro, the quality slips to, to and is a, and it's a showcase of maybe our creator is not as infallible as we think they are, and in terms of Lucas, that was the prequels. And oddly enough, in terms of J.K. Rowling, that is also the prequels. Although I hear Cursed Child is also uh, suffers from a lot of that same thing. Where it's like, are we sure this is the same woman who wrote the other books? Because I feel like I feel like we got somebody who doesn't understand her own creation. And I think that's the problem. Is that Rowling has become so, uh, you know, so kind of up her own ass about about maintaining control of her franchise, her universe, that I feel like even Lucas made the right decision of allowing other creators to have... Like, that's the thing. Even though the Expanded Universe isn't canon anymore, the fact that Lucas allowed other creators besides himself to create these iconic storylines that people have loved even to this day that he to himself didn't write, but he gave his blessing to be like, yes, this is considered canon in the universe. And people wa- read those stories and watched those stories and played those stories. And they were considered part of this massive universe. The fact that Lucas allowed for that freedom helped create the, the franchise that people became, you know, became to, you know, came to love. And I do think that's where Disney has, has sort of, Whatever the opposite of ingratiated itself, it sort of distanced itself from the fans in that way, 
Whereas Lucas gave was willing to give more freedom, he Disney is much more stringent on who dictates what is canon. And unfortunately, that means there's a lot less cool creativity going on within the Star Wars franchise anymore. I don't know. I don't know if the book how the books are this. Time. I hear the comic books are good with Marvel. Um, I hear like the, the the Vader and the Leia comics were amazing. But the fact that Disney limited the scope of Star Wars by cutting out so much that people loved about the franchise definitely may, definitely kind of soured its it, the fandom, and I and I under and that's the part that I understand and I get and I totally get. And when it comes to movies, the movies, which is what I'm focusing on, I think Disney. Improved by having new creators tell new, somewhat new stories. Even though I didn't like Solo, I liked that it was trying something new. I liked Rogue One. I liked I liked that it was telling the story we hadn't heard before. I like uh, the Last Jedi. I liked that it was sub. I liked that it wanted to say, "Screw your expectations. I'm trying to tell something. I'm trying to tell this. I'm trying to tell this new story here." It felt like what it was. I felt like something in the same vein as Empire. It's not as good as Empire, but it felt like it was going for what Empire went for, and that's why I liked it. Um, but with Rowling, she is she is. To Dis- she's more like Disney is to the property than Lucas was. Whereas, like that's the thing, Lucas was not a great creator, but his willingness to allow other people's work to be part of his creation is what ingratiated him to the fans. The fact that he was willing to allow things like troops to be made and other cool fan creations to be like, no, this is f- this is fun. He liked that fans loved his work. That's the sign of a good creator. That's why I don't. I can't hate Lucas. I'll. I can mock him. I can mock his his terrible storytelling and his you know sort of childlike you know sensibilities. But I can't knock the fact that he is exactly what a creator should be. He is welcoming of anything positive that comes from his creation. We just lost Stan Lee this past week, and Lee. I think is another one of those kind of creators that he he loves what his, the fans did with his work. He loved be, he loved sharing in that fandom. He you know he was the creator of the iconic characters, and he was he was he had a blast sharing in that enjoyment and becoming a part of his own creation in a way. He became a he became this iconic character within his, you know he became a recurring bit within the within the Marvel movies both the MCU and outside of it because he he's so beloved by the fans because he is one of those creators who's like I love my th- I love my thing and I like what you're doing with my thing that came out wrong but point but my I like my creation and I see you also like my creation I see you're also doing things to kind of create your own things, but it's in the same vein as my creation, and I like that. I like what you're doing, and Lucas was that kind of creator. Rowling is much is more in line with what Disney is doing with Star Wars. She is much more stringent. She is she is the end all be all, and she has not let other creators take over. Right? Because I think that's the thing. 
Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the book, is one of the worst in the fr- in the series, in my opinion. Uh, it was it almost it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if people dropped off after reading it because it was just so cloyingly awful. And yet the movie, upon rewatch, captures what worked about the story and not what kind of brought it down in terms of Carrie's inner monologue and his sort of whininess and his angst. It felt that even though he definitely had a reason to be angry and, and, and you know, frustrated, he came about it the wrong way and it's so annoying to witness and you just want to smack the kid upside the head and say, knock it off! And, yeah, I feel like they managed to pull back from that and display a kind of angst that Harry understood because of the situation. And that's because you have screenwriters and a director who was able to take that storyline, distill it from its, from, its raw, from its raw form into a more distilled, into a more, you know... Um, precise form, a more a leaner, more perfected form, and it improved on on pretty much everything about the book, and and was even able to take the Half Blood Prince and create probably one of the most iconic movies in the franchise. If I'm not, if I do say so myself, and the fact that the same director behind those move behind some of the best of the Harry Potter movies is unable to recreate that. I think is a sign that it's not he's only he can only do so much that once again it comes back to the writer. And unfortunately, the writer is J.K. Rowling. And unfortunately, J.K. Rowling is is I feel like has got it she she struck gold once and is continually continuing to mine that same vein but is coming back with uh diminishing returns. I feel like she should go further down the vein and try more, try others, other parts of the franchise, and do more things with it. But she is stuck where she's at and is unable to really bring forth the same kind of passion that came from that initial creation of Harry Potter. When she's trying to expand the universe, she's sort of up her own. She's sort of stuck in her own head with it, and. That ultimately kind of gets in the way of creativity. Uh, I bring this up as a creator myself, but who constantly gets in his own head and ultimately leaves things unfinished because I can't. Because I can't. I, I get stuck. I get stuck and up my own and get stuck in my own head, and I overthink so many things that I end up leaving things unfinished. And I, because I step away to kind of clear my head, and then I lose that spark that got me to work on it. I and I bring this up because I've given up on NaNoWriMo for the year, and I probably won't do it uh, next year either. I tried to do it this year. I tried, and what happened is I started off with a sort of Douglas Adams, I, I an idea of a Douglas Adams sort of inspired satirical look at a Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy world. That was basically taking the world of like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign and making it farcical and comical and focusing specifically on non-human characters. Our main characters are none of them. None of our main characters were fully human. Were human at all? 
they were specifically a quarter elf, which is a half elf who who the daughter of a half elf and a human. Um, uh, a, a pork. I initially wanted it to be a gnome, but I switched it to like a porcupine. I may have gone with a kobold like style lizard character, but I also had a lizard person as well. Uh, an orc, uh, a, a demon, a, you know, a demonic character, a la the tieflings. Um, a dragon care, a dragonborn style character, and um, I think that was it. There was, it was the orc, the demon, the beast, uh, the lizard, the dragon, and then the quarter elf. And then they're they're uh, they're sort of like uh, le- they're sort of like leader slash um, mentor is a was a full on like. Cousin It style hairball uh, that was li- that was actually just a hippie dwarf, and that started off as a co- it started off comical. And I wanted it to be fa- like a farce, and then as I kept writing because I, I, NaNoWriMo has you on a deadline, so as I pushed forward to try and create that universe that I wanted it to be funny and and lighthearted and silly and you know pull, you know poking fun at all the tropes of of fantasy, it ultimately became like a treatise on systemic racism, and then the last chapter I wrote dealt with a tragic backstory where the main character's mom was killed by an unruly mob that was caused by the by, by agents of the government inciting a riot to get her killed in order to continue. Uh, um, they continue suppressing the minority races of the realm. So what started off as a light-hearted, you know, poking fun at the at trope at fantasy tropes became a treatise on systemic racism, and I didn't like it. Number one, because I feel like I'm not equipped to tell that kind of story, and number two, that that's where my mind was at. That's where my mind went, that what started off as a fun, almost Adventure Zone style, like, silly thing. And Adventure Zone got serious, but it was never, never dark. Like, it was never, like, un, it, was, it was never, like, tragic. It was never, like, full-on, like, emo, I should say. Where it's, like, because, I mean, like, it got tragic. And it got, had heartfelt backstories and drama. But I feel like what I ended up doing was trying way too hard to kind of call out call out the injustices that I'm seeing around me. And I feel like that's ultimately detracting from what my initial vision was. And so I had to step back and I think I'm going to have to try again with a different project. But I think, and I think the problem ultimately comes down to NaNoWriMo is not how I... Um, that does it stifles my creativity. I am creative in bursts. I can't be creative on a deadline, and I think that's my problem. Is that so much requires you to be creative on a deadline, and I feel like I need time to to allow myself to be in the right headspace. And if I'm not, and by being in such a negative headspace, it affected my work. And I feel like that's not. I feel like that's not my best way of working. And, I, and so I'm going to try some other stuff. I'm going to try and work on some other projects for the rest of the month and take Thanksgiving break and see if I can't work on some other things. 
but NaNoWriMo was not for me. That became a really personal um, uh, confession in the middle of the Harry Potter discussion. But I feel like that, that ties into Rowling. Where she is like Rowling, like I like I was with my own creation. Rowling is so obsessed with maintaining control of her world that I feel like she is losing the opportunity for other creators, other writers to come in and tell better stories because she has to have the final say. And I feel like she's ultimately not creative enough to really tell the kinds of stories she wants to tell. Like, and that's why, that's where, that's where the Lucas comparison comes in. Because Lucas had a, had some interesting thoughts and ideas going into the prequels. The idea that the system was corrupt. That it was that corruption that led to the rise of a, of a villainous uh, dictator. That it was because of the corruption that his rise to power was deemed as a triumph. The fact that the Jedi Order was so archaic and... And spread out and un and mismanaged that it ultimately led to its own downfall. Those kind of themes are good, and a good writer can take those themes and tell really interesting stories. Lucas took what was essentially a pulp story, a pulp, a sort of pulp space fantasy universe, tried to bring. Really, really detailed levels of realism into it and took away the fun. Star Wars ultimately is about fun. I think that's why more people enjoy The Force Awakens to The Last Jedi. Because The Last Jedi is not fun. And that's where that's where it ties into the prequels where it's like it's this level of detailed realism that ultimately takes away from what works about Star Wars. So I will concede that notion. However, I still, you know, enjoy I, where I where I enjoy the Last Jedi over the prequels is the char- the actors are much better and the storyline is still a little more streamlined. Whereas the prequel storyline was so convoluted and and looked almost like the Charlie Day conspiracy meme. Uh, and and the, I'm assuming that's how George Lucas's writing process for the prequels went. Whereas the Last Jedi is fairly straightforward it's the idea that the your um you know your your brashness and your willingness to stand up to the enemy at all costs leaves people dead and that's not how you win wars and also the fact that there are people who are gaining gaming war and profiteering off of it and not everybody you can never really tell who's who's if, if there are even good and bad sides so the adding gray areas to the Star Wars universe that's not a bad thing. And I feel and people are like like I was just at a movie night with some friends and they all complained about Last Jedi and I was in my lonely table of one uh table for one of people who liked Last Jedi and their one of their complaints was the the rebellion's only like 50 people. So they're like their whole rebellions that started with fewer people. Like how many people started the American Revolution? How many people start entire, you know, you may say, well, that's in a country. That's not in the entire galaxy. You've started, people have started rebellions with with fewer people. And they've still got, they still have lay in charge. They still have 
their stockpile, they probably still have their stockpiles from other stuff. It was just trying to escape the First Order. And, and, you know, now that the, I'm assuming the Galactic Republic has been dismantled and the idea that they have to go underground again. The whole point of The Last Jedi, Jedi is to send them all underground and to ignite the spark that will lead to the next generation of heroes. It doesn't matter if they win now. They have to incite it. Uh, my nephew brought up a good point when we talked about it um, this weekend. Uh, that he kind of, it kind of, Last Jedi reminded him of the of the of the failed revolution in Les Mis. In that movie, you had these college kids who wanted to start a revolution against, I believe, the monarchy, and it was whatever the government there was. And they wanted revolution, and they thought that they could ignite the spark to to start the fire to bring down the you know bring down. Uh, the tyrannical government, and unfortunately, they were stamped down, and the fire was killed before it could even begin. And I feel like that was the intent of the Last Jedi to do exactly that same thing, only and it and it showcased that by by doing exactly what they were doing, they were inspiring others, so that there would be people willing to rise up against the First Order if they if given the chance. That's the point of the of the movie. That's the overall theme. Keep hope alive. This is more about The Last Jedi than it is about Harry Potter, sadly. I think that's because I don't find J.K. Rowling that interesting. The universe itself is good. The universe is, is iconic. It's a great sort of modernization of, of magic. And it's a great sort of urban fantasy, for the most part. And it's, re- it's got really great visuals but the storylines have been neglecting, you know, they've been, you know, really hit or miss lately. And I feel like the problem is Rowling is not as good of a writer as she thinks she is. And, you know, there are some other things like the whole whitewashing of Lavender Brown, which I actually got into a fight with a prominent black uh, blogger, Black Nerd Writes, on Twitter, actually, by saying, that, that kid, you know, I was defend, I was acting like that was that, that they were overreacting about the whitewashing. And it took me talking to a friend of mine who works with, you know, works in some capacity in the uh, entertainment industry, you know, talking to her about it, like, is that what happened? Like, you would, like, you have more experience in this than I do. And she was like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally what happened. That, and I'm like, yeah, you know, and sadly it took uh, a white girl ex- telling telling me that I was wrong for me to believe it. And I will fully admit that that is wrong of me. And that's why I've, I've since kind of accepted the fact that I need to shut my damn fool mouth and let other people talk and listen to what they have to say instead of being an ass and sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong. That was definitely a learning experience for me. But... It def- it, but it also showcased the need to have that those diverse voices speaking out. And it's because of that that you, people are now speaking out against Crimes of Grindelwald and the idea that her way of diversifying is to create a, a an Asian character out of a, a, a out of an animal and a black character out of a very very traumatic aspect of actual human history. So her way of adding, and there wasn't a neat reason to do that. There was no reason for her to make uh, a, make uh, Zoe Kravitz's character part of the Little Strange family at all. But for some reason, that's what she went with. And you know that she didn't need to make Nagini a character, a human character in the first place. Like Nagini could have just been a snake. 
a snake endowed with magical powers because Voldemort turned her into a Horcrux. There's no need to make her a make her a human character in the first place. I'm not really sure what that adds to the storyline. Maybe that there's like a maybe she has her own uh, Charlie Day conspiracy wall of like, no, this is all gonna pay off in the fifth movie. Because that's the other thing. Unlike a tr- prequel tw- trilogy, this is a prequel uh, quintology. We've got five movies in this Fantastic Beasts series to look forward to. Joy. Um, and I feel like this her, her trying to wreck... And, that, and yet the problem is you have, you've already established that Dumbledore was gay after the fact. You retconned Dumbledore to be gay once. And so when you have the opportunity to showcase Dumbledore being gay, you don't take that opportunity. I think that's kind of, I think that kind of speaks volumes that she wants to have more visually diverse cast of characters in her movies. But when it comes to things like sexuality, she's not, she doesn't really need, you know, she's not really exactly keen on including more gay characters or more trans characters. I know she's been accused of being a uh, trans exclusionary uh, radical feminist uh, a lot and because of her words and she's not good on Twitter. Like, she's good for some clapbacks, but she is peak white liberalism. She is suburban white liberalism at its finest. And I think people are kind of catching on to that and like, hey, can you kind of leave Harry Potter to us now because you're kind of ruining it for us. I think, so in that sense, I feel like at least Lucas isn't going about ruining... St- ruining Star Wars by being a terrible person. <laughs> I think he, I think he has that over Rowling. Wow, this is being this is all over the place. Uh, I have notes too, and it's just I'm ignoring them. So when it comes to the Wizarding World, I like the universe. I like the style of it. I like the fact that it's an urban fantasy, and there are cool stories that you can tell within it. Rowling is not telling them though, and I think that's the problem is that she has such a limited scope of the kind of story she wants to tell, that she basically took um, the Harry Potter storyline and condensed it down to a less refined and more watered-down version in the form of Fantastic Beasts. And that's why I still hold true to my to my opinion that Fantastic Beasts should have been a travelogue. It should have been Newt Scamander gathering the information he needs to publish his book, going from continent to continent, part of the Wizarding World to part of the Wizarding World, showcasing the diversity of the Wizarding World in every culture in order to really represent all of the parts of human culture there are in the world by showcasing how the Wizarding World interacts with that culture and bringing in more diverse characters and more diverse settings and probably more diverse creators. Why not bring in more diverse writers to kind of help bring a sense, bring that sense of, of its sincerity to those sorts of stories. Why not have some African writers write stories about new Scamander coming to Africa? Why not have indigenous writers write about new Scamander coming to America and dealing with native cult, dealing with the native cultures? Why not have, um, you know, some other, you know, you could write about, you know, you can write about European cultures for the most part, being that, you know, you've grown up within Europe, and so you have more relatability to that, and so much of the Harry Potter franchise took place within Europe, but, you know, have some Chinese writers come in to talk about China and Japan and Southeast Asia, have an Indian writer talk about News Commander visiting India, you know, have a, have a, have a Latin American writer write about him visiting South America or Central America, you know, visiting the Caribbean, visiting the Pacific Islands, 
You know, have Newt's commander be like the Wizarding World's David Attenborough, and while he's collecting information about all of these magical creatures, he inadvertently gets caught up in the Wizarding World politics, and he has to try and help out wherever he can and do the right thing because he's a Hufflepuff. That is interesting. Newt's commander, as he is, is kind of a douchebag and isn't exactly ingratiating himself to the world around him. And I feel like that's a mistake, that you, you should have Newt Scamander be the, un, the reluctant hero. Whereas Harry Potter stood firmly in his role as the chosen one, Newt Scamander should be, you know, a pacifist. He should be avoiding it, but he shouldn't be a pacifist in the face of, you know, a, a wizard supremacist trying to take over the world. Like, you can only say passive, you can only say passive in that, you know, in the face of such you know, mounting violence and hatred for so long. And the fact that they're trying to basically recreate Voldemort in the form of Grindelwald is not interesting. Like, instead of... Like, Fantastic Beasts shouldn't even be about Newt's Commander at this point. It should be about Dumbledore. This should be Dumbledore's prequel. But for some reason, we already started with Newt's Commander, and now it has to be about him. And I feel like that was the mistake. This should not be about Newt's Commander. It should be about Dumbledore. This should be about Dumbledore facing off against Grindelwald, and it's all and it's the creation of Dumbledore's army. Well, no, Dumbledore's army was specifically for Voldemort, but it's basically the setup for what would end up to be Dumbledore's army. And not, Dumbledore's army was Harry Potter, um, Order of the Phoenix. So basically, this should ultimately the series should end up with him, fe- you know, defeating Grindelwald and eventually leading into the creation of the Order of the Phoenix by making all of these connections. We should be focusing on Dumbledore at this point because that's who should be the main character if we're dealing with Grindelwald. Why are we talking about Newt Scamander? Why? Why does he? Why, how does he focus into the story when he's just a bumbling idiot for the most of the time? <sighs> I feel like that's kind of... She wrote herself into a box and she's unwilling to let her... To admit the fact that this should not be about Newt Scamander so much. And... Yeah. yeah. I feel like the first Fantastic Beasts also made... The, the, she already wrote herself into a corner with that one. And now she she continues to just bury herself in that corner and not get out. And I feel like that's where the mistake comes in. And a good writer knows how to get yourself out of those corners. And she, meanwhile, is is is, is doubling down on standing in the corner. So, I still may, I still think that there, you know, you could do a Knights of the Old Republic. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a prequel movie about the founding of Hogwarts, where you have Rowena, you know, you have Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin meeting for the first time and deciding to found the school and all of the problems therein, and realize that realize kind of maybe give some more insight to why Salazar Slytherin was the way he was instead of just being mustache twirlingly evil. So how did these you know disparate wizards come together to found this one school? Maybe do this. Maybe do the same thing for uh, um, Edelweiss or whatever the hell the uh, American school is, and do, you know establish what the Chinese school would be and what the Indian school would be, what magic is like in Africa and Australia and Pacific Islands and all. There's so many parts of the actual world around us that that, that focusing so much on Europe is very limiting. And that you should allow for that more. Like, that's the whole thing. Star Wars didn't just focus on Tatooine, Coruscant, and, um, 
Yeah, Tatooine and Coruscant. Like, we never stayed on those planets. We allowed ourselves to visit Mustafar and Kashyyyk and um, Endor and uh, Yavin and all of these other planets. We were allowed to visit other planets in the galaxy, even though the characters were limited, sadly. And that's the other part of the problem with Star Wars, is that you're limiting the amount of characters you're telling stories about. And that's the great thing about the expanded universe, is you allowed for a much more diverse cast of characters. And the movie should do the same. And I feel like that's the problem with Harry Potter, is that it's very limiting. So like I said, allow for more creators in their, to, to gain access to the canon, write their own unique stories, tell more diverse stories with diverse settings and diverse characters, and then you'll have something on your hands. But by focusing so much on Europe and having your own idea, and having one person in charge of it all who's showcasing that they're just not as creative as we thought they were, then it's never going to really go anywhere, sadly. It's never going to go anywhere creatively. It may be successful, but Illumination's successful, but I don't think they'll stay relevant after a while because I feel like people will lose interest and they won't want to revisit it, whereas people continue to revisit Disney and DreamWorks and Pixar and all those other movies because there was something there, whereas with Illumination, there's nothing there. So you can make your money, sure, but what? where's your legacy? What will your legacy be? And I feel like Rowling is continuing to diminish her legacy as time goes on by making more and more watered-down products. So... That's just me. We'll end this off the same way I did with the MCU and Star Wars with a ranking of all of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, for me personally, from top to bottom, actually we'll go from bottom to top. We'll go from least favorite to favorite. Um, least favorites are Cry Crimes of Grindelwald and Fantastic Beasts. I think they're I think Fantastic Beasts is, was the lowest ranking of them all before Grindelwald, just because it was it had the elements of Harry Potter, but it was less refined, and I felt like it was a rough draft of what would have been a better story. And Crimes of Grindelwald is just a hot mess of a movie. Um, after that, we get into the, the Harry Potter uh, proper with Prisoner of Azkaban. I still hold true to the fact that Prisoner of Azkaban is the least Harry Potter of the Harry Potter movies. It is the most inconsistent in tone. It is the most... Um, it is the least uh, adherent to what works about Harry Potter is the one that sticks out the most within the canon. And you could like it if you want and, you know, enjoy it. Be, be my guest. But when it comes to Harry Potter, if I want to watch a Harry Potter movie, I don't return to Prisoner of Azkaban. It just doesn't work for me the same way the other ones do. Uh, on that same level, Deathly Hallows Part 1. It's all set up, no payoff. You can skip it. Um... Up next, we've got the first one, Sorcerer's Slash Philosopher's Stone, which, stupid thing, stupid scholastic. We get, people who people can understand what a Philosopher's Stone is. You can explain that the Philosopher's Stone was an alchemic creation. I think by that point, I, I want to say by that point, Full Metal Alchemist was starting to come into popularity. The Philosopher's Stone was prominently featured in that franchise. We, you don't need to tell it. You don't need to make up something just because you think your kids are stupid. You can say philosopher stone. Anyway, um, anyway, yeah, that one, that one's a just that one is the one that's e the most easily digestible, but it's also the one that y it does the least amount. I feel like that's the ba base le that's your base level Harry Potter, and then right in the middle, actually, like I like I said. <laughs> Right in the middle is Goblet of Fire, perfectly average Harry Potter movie. It's the one that you can return to without a problem. It's not, it's not terrible, it's not amazing, but it's perfectly good. Uh, next up, actually, number, next up surprised me, Order of the Phoenix. 
I feel like Order of the Phoenix does so much more with what Goblet of Fire established that even though the book is not it's one that I never want to reread again, uh, the movie is genuinely uh, taught and thrill and thrilling. And I feel like David Yates came in came out the gate swinging uh, with that one. Next up. Uh, Chamber of Secrets. Actually, I, I find Chamber of Secrets to be the best of the Columbus era uh, of the of the two Columbus um, Harry Potter movies, and I still hold true to that. I feel like it took what Columbus established in uh, Sorcerer's Stone and improved on it in a lot of ways. And it was the sad to see that that was the last of Richard Harris, but I think I think it was a great send off. I think that was a phenomenal movie, and it was one of, it definitely one of the top tier of the Harry Potter franchise. Next up, it's interesting. We've got Deathly Hallows Part Two, which I consider to be um, the the second best of the established Harry Potter movies. So, of the ones that are released, that one's the second best. That one's my second favorite. It is the best way to send off the franchise. Although, the, once again, I think we saw it with the epilogue of Harry of Deathly Hallows. That epilogue killed all of that momentum to do a whole chapter of fan service. And it just didn't work. And even in the movie, it felt fan servicey and unnatural. And all of the aged up characters look awkward. And it's not very good. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Deathly Hallows Part Two is the is the second favorite of mine. The, now here's here's where here's where I have to step in and do a theoretical favorite. If you cut down some of the lagging bits of Part One. And made a three and a half hour cut of both Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, a la what some people have done with the Hobbit trilogy. And you made that a singular movie. That would, that would be my second favorite over Part 2. So the theoretical single movie of the Deathly Hallows would be my, other, would be my second favorite out of all of them. But, you know, that's just me. And then finally... Favorite, I've mentioned it before, my favorite is Half-Blood Prince. I feel like that one is the most iconic of the franchise. It has the most infamous moment, the one that it became. It, it did what uh, Luke, 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 no Luke, I'm your father, did for um, the present day generation sort of zeitgeist. The spoiler in Half-Blood Prince is one that was etched in pop culture history forever. And... I feel like alongside that is just a phenomenal sort of... Like, the movie itself also focuses so much more on establishing Draco Malfoy's character instead of just being a snotty little brat. You see him develop into a three-dimensional character. And he... Like I said, it's such a good movie with one of the worst parts about it being that Warner Brothers whitewashed a character that they established in in the cast list as as one as being i believe a black girl and then they whitewashed her to so when she finally became a prominent so instead of so for despite the fact that they had the same cast of characters this whole time when one when the black girl finally got to raise in prominent when the black when a girl playing one when a black girl playing a character's finally rose up to prominence in the in the cast list and in the storyline they recast her with a white chick and I definitely feel like that was a mis- that was mishandling on Warner Brothers' part. That was whatever bets they were trying to hedge that they they miscalculated terribly. So yeah, that was the that is the worst part of uh, Half Blood Prince. But story wise, um, performances and uh, technical technically speaking, Half Blood Prince is the best 
a Harry Potter movie, in my opinion. It is the one that I can would continue to revisit time and again. But that's just me. You know, if you have your own ranking, let me know and you know, send me a message. I would love to hear back from you. Uh, I'll give you more information about that in the in the uh, outro. But yeah, you know, if there's anything if there's anything you want to add, if you want to contradict me, if you want to rebuttal, if you want to rebut me, um, you know, if you want to give your rebuttal to my assumptions and give your own opinions on what you think is either. Uh, uh, if working or is kind of holding the Harry Potter franchise back, let me know. I would lo- once again, I would love some audience feedback, and don't be afraid to send those messages in. You can find out more about that at the end of the episode. Uh, with that being said, let's we're starting to cut some cut long a bit here, um, so let's move right along to the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right, uh, big big releases this weekend, so we're gonna take a look at uh, what you know what the shakeup in the uh, box office looks like. We lost a good chunk out of the top seven this week. Um, we lost one out of the top ten. Halloween dropped precipitously uh, out of the top ten from number nine to number sixteen, and I'm trying to see if uh, a private ward took a took a Took it took an uptick from twenty eight to fifteen, but still not a whole lot. Just because I think it's still in it's still only playing in a few theaters. Like how they they were not even in a, in a thousand theaters at this point in time. So yeah, it's not so it's not doing too well at the box office. But I think it's gearing more towards the awards season than anything else. So uh, dropping out of the top seven, we had nobody's fool. Uh, the Girl in the Spider's Web, and Overlord. Overlord took a big drop from number three to number eight. And those we're, not, we're done talking about them. Uh, Nobody's Fool uh, ended up with $28.8 million, $28. million, so it made back its money. Girl with the Spider's Tattoo... Girl, with the, Girl in the Spider's Web only made $13 million um, so far with... Uh, a double it by and doubling that in the in in the foreign market. So twenty six million dollars on a forty three million dollar budget. This is a colossal bomb, and I couldn't be happier. Uh, Overlord made seventeen million dollars. Uh, little let's see how it did internationally. About double that. So it looks like it's on its way to make back its money. Uh, we'll see how long it lasts when we hit the holiday season. Uh, so we start off with number seven. Last week's number five, A Star Is Born. Brought in $4.3 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $185.8 million. And its worldwide gross after, how many weeks? Seven weeks. Almost eight, almost two months in the, bo- in, the, in, the in theaters, and it's at a $340.7 million. This is what we call a successful remake. I still say this is the best of, this, of, the, of all of the A Star Is Born franchise, but that's just me. So, good on you. Dropping from number four to number six is The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, bringing in $4.6 million and bringing its domestic total up to $43.8 million and its worldwide grows up to $116.2 million. So, after two weeks, it still hasn't made back its budget of $120 million. And if we take a look at the foreign markets, the big money winners there are China with $15 million, and then you've got UK... Spain, Poland, it looks, yeah, Poland, 
Mexico, Italy really liked it, seven million dollars, and Germany and Brazil. So the big winner here is China. China's really helping this along, but yeah. Not a whole lot of people are seeing it, even in the foreign markets. So even though it may double its American release so far, uh, well, less than double, 72 versus 43, it's still not enough to really make this a success. This is definitely one of go- going to go down as one of the lesser of the Disney live-action canon of re- under Bob Iger. Uh, next up, number five, new premiere this week, Widows brought in $12.3 million dollars. And sadly, that's on a $42 million budget. And it did get a little extra from the foreign markets, but its opening weekend gross was $19.6 million. I'm hoping that word of mouth will get more people to stay and see it. Maybe wait until there's a lull in the box office and when, you know, like the big, big, like, tentpole releases are done. But I really hope this doesn't end up a failure because it is, once again, the, the best movie to come out this week. Uh, meanwhile, Instant Family premiered at number four with fourteen point seven million dollars, and that only that also that cost forty eight million dollars to make and doesn't have a foreign market helping it out. So I'm hoping this one is a flop. I'm hoping people drop out of this one because. And if well, let's take a look at Sean Anders' uh, opening weekends. Uh, he's. If we go back to his first major release, Sex Drive, in 2008, that opened at $3 million uh, in 2008 money, so whatever the inflation is for that. That's My Boy opened at 13.4. Horrible Bosses 2 at 15.4. The Daddy's Home Movies premiered at 38 and 29 million. So this opened more in line with what he did before Daddy's Home. So this is a step back for him. Um, yeah, it, it really... It really is. I'm hoping this does poorly for him, and, and maybe he can do better next time. I don't. I doubt it, though. He's just not that good. And I'm hoping this is a bomb because it, was, it deserves to flop, unlike Widows. Uh, meanwhile, dropping down from number two to number three is Bohemian Rhapsody, which brought in $15.7 million, uh, bringing its domestic gross up to $127.8 million, and its worldwide gross up to $384 million. I think it's a couple. I think it's like half as much time spent in the box. Three, yeah, three, three weeks of the box office made more than um, A Star Is Born has so far, and I think that's just because people like their queen, man. Even if the movie's not that great, they still love their queen. And Rami Malek is good enough as Freddie Mercury. It does a decent job as Freddie Mercury, and that's all that people really need. And if we take a look at the foreign markets, Europe is really carrying this movie. Um, You've got uh, 14 million from France, 10 from Germany, 12 from Mexico, 9 from uh, Russia, 14 from Korea, 37. Most of the foreign market is coming from UK because they love their Freddie Mercury there too. So just in the UK alone, it almost made back its budget so far. So there you go. There you have it. Uh, number two this week is last week's number one, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch from Illumination. It brought in $38.1 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $126.5 million, and its foreign gross, and combined with the foreign gross, had a two-week total, has a two-week total of $151.7 million, nearly double its budget, so it, it's already a success. Illumination keeps them cheap, so they can easily make back their money. They don't make good stuff, they make cheap stuff. 
IKEA of animation. And finally, premiering at number one this week, we've got Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which opened domestically at $62.2 million, bringing its, uh, and combined with its foreign premiere, opened at $253 million. So it, opening weekend, it made back its money. So even if it doesn't, like it would have to drop entirely out of the box office for it to be considered a failure like uh, like the other two. I feel like people, uh, like if we compare this to uh, The Wizarding World, uh, opening opening uh, release-wise, the highest opening was Deathly Hallows Part 2, and that had build-up to it. So Goblet of Fire, aside from the Deathly Hallows movies, Goblet of Fire was the one that had the highest opening. And Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald is the lowest. So, but I, but at the same time, by the end of the run, Fantastic Beasts had like half a billion dollars. I was, I think, that at least two hundred thirty-four million. Yeah, eight, and it had almost a billion, eight hundred fourteen million dollars. Uh, Fantastic Beasts had by the end. So, like I said, this will probably make back make about the same amount of money worldwide. I, I don't, I don't doubt that. Crimes of Grindelwald will probably end up doing better than Fantastic Beasts. We'll see how it compares to the rest of the Harry Potter franchise, but it, it's all—I mean—it's premiering the lowest, so we'll see. It may—it may end up doing the worst out of all of them, and it may be a sign that you know Harry Potter is losing its luster and it needs some new blood in it. Uh, if we take a look at—we can't take a look at who the what the wait. Um, what we'll to take? What we'll to wait until? Uh, Ne- probably next week to see how the foreign markets uh, broke down, but I'm assuming probably China and the UK were the big boosters for this one uh, for that almost two hundred million dollar opening. So yeah, that was this week's box office report. Uh, it premiered. Everything happened about as well as I as about as you know how I pictured it would be. Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, the Grinch would hold on steady while Fantastic Beasts would come would come storming in like a troll in the dungeon. And then meanwhile, Instant Family and Widows would kind of sneak in through the back. And yeah, but how are they going to fare next week? Well, let's take a look ahead in uh, our in our next segment, Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. Well, the sad thing is, uh, I don't think Instant Family and Widows will have uh, much legs to, you know, have very good legs to stand on because we've got another super mega awesome movie review madness lined up for next week. We've got three wide releases and two expansions to look forward to, uh, depending on what comes to my area in theater. So... Uh, to, to hedge our bets, we're going to take a look at the five listed through uh, thenumbers.com. And our first up, our first big one is the one I was had the most trepidatious about. And that is Wreck-It Ralph 2. Ralph breaks the internet. Well, technically, Ralph breaks the internet Wreck-It Ralph 2. So let's take a look at that trailer. So yeah, this new trailer, the latest trailer looks like it's more in line with that original movie. Yeah. 
Ooh, yeah. Oh no, I'm freaking out hard. This Thanksgiving. If I'm not a racer, what am I? Oh, you're my best friend. All we gotta do is find the part to fix your game. You, Everything goes back. That sounds like a more realistic plot. Yeah, so they end up on the internet to help save Vanellope's game. Uh, and that's how it gets them in those shenanigans. I do like the idea of them playing basically like GTA. Attention to details pretty impressive. <laughs> For the creators of Zootopia. Well, well, well. Hi, Gagal. Hi, Gagal. And the studio that brought you Frozen. Disney presents. I love it here. Who knew there's so many babies and cats in the world? Ha, that is what the internet was Hi, Taraji P. Henson. There's no law saying best friends have to have the same dreams. <laughs> Frickin' Ralph flossing. Or whatever the Fortnite dance is. Ralph breaks the internet. This is what's called the dark net. Are you sure this is safe? Because whatever you do, do not look at his little brother. Oh, his little brother? <laughs> Hi, Quato. The reason I came to your neck of the face. I mean, there's a face in your neck. I mean, woods. Neck of the woods. Uh, yeah. Even even with that trailer, it's it, it, it looks like we're going to get Disney's The Emoji Movie. And I feel like that's the biggest hurdle to cross is that it needs to be better than that. And it's hard to tell if it's going to be just from the trailers. I have faith... That they, I mean, these are the same people who made the last movie and Zootopia. So I have faith that they know what they're doing. But if they cave too much to being ha, uh, lol to random internet humor that's going to age poorly, will yeah, it, it'll it, maybe if it's a commentary on the fact that internet uh, culture, uh, you know, continually changes so fast, may, it might have something for going for it. But I don't know. It's hard to tell. Uh, with this one, I kind of I I don't know where else they can go if they're going to directly to the internet this time. I feel like they should stop Wreck and Ralph here, at least in terms of its movies. Wait, wait some, get, wait until the next like major video game advance uh, development. Maybe wait till VR becomes um, easy, more easily accessible in order for uh, to do in order to make another co another sort of gaming based movie. I feel like. Going to the internet directly is going to age it significantly, even within the first week of it being out. But we'll see. Uh, next up, one that I need to, uh, one that uh, I need to check out the original uh, for this one or the previous entry for it. I may have to do a deep dive on the Rocky franchise. Uh, but we'll, uh, but it, for what? But for right now, let's take a look at the new, the the last trailer for Creed Two. Man, Michael B. Jordan's amazing. Damn. I'm so glad we have him right now. He is one of he's just one of the best actors working right now. 
nothing really matters to him right now. It was nice for for Lisa Rashad after the fallout from the Cosby show being pulled from syndication is that she not she can at least get residuals from whenever Creed gets played on uh, cable or something. Hey Tessa Thompson, we got Killmonger and Valkyrie in the same movie with Judge Dredd. Ha! Ah, uh, uh, crossovers. And the Punisher! Oh my god! It's all connected! This should be interesting. Who's playing Ivan Drago's son? It's not just us anymore, Dave. I want to rewrite history. If you want to fight this man, that's your business. God, he's towering over even Michael B. Jordan. Your father. This here is all about my wife, my kids, the life that I Is that DMX? No, who is that? I, th- I want to say that's DMX. Uh, Florian Montianu is the uh, is the guy playing Victor Creed uh, in the movie. He's only been in one other movie, uh, Bogat. So I have no idea um, about the guy, but he looks definitely he definitely looks intimidating. We'll see how he does if he can be as iconic as Dolph Lundgren was as. Uh, I, Ivan Drago. It wasn't all about me. Creed 2. Uh, Thanksgiving, yeah, that's gonna be a big one. So we'll see. Uh, I'm gonna have to probably do another deep, uh, another deep dive this week, looking into the Rocky movies. Uh, just so I can, just so I have something to say about them. But thankfully there's less to, to watch than, uh, the other than the Harry Potter franchise, so I can do my 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 uh, deep dive into those quick more uh, quicker than when I did uh, when I did Harry Potter, where I had to binge them in three days and like continually just move on to the next one. Um, but before I move on, I do want to check uh, trailer music DMX. I want to I want to be sure who we beat. Yep, that's it. I was I to- I called it. I called it. I think that's new DMX. I'm not sure if that's new DMX or not. If that's new DMX, then I think he's re- recording from his pri- from his prison cell or something. I don't, maybe it's a deep cut. But nice, nice. I lo- I love whoever is doing the trailers for uh, Creed because you had uh, DNA by Kendrick Lamar in the last one. Now you got DMX in this one mixed in with the uh, cinematic score. It's great stuff. Uh, last of the new releases, we've got Robin Hood. Uh, Let's take a look at this one. This is the story of a thief. I think that's Joel Kinnaman. You wanted to steal. Or um what's it? No, I think that's um He stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Uh, uh, Jamie Dornan as Alan Adale. What else you got? I call him Robert Yeah, Jamie Dornan. No, Jamie Dornan's Will Scarlet. Who's Alan Adale? Nice ring to it, don't you think? I think Alan Adale's in this movie. The sheriff and power. The money. I want to hit the treasury itself. How would you do it? Set up a meeting. Everyone is with us. Rob! How did you know it was me? You called out in the sky? Well, it fooled everybody else! This is suicide. The danger's what makes it fun. 
Yeah, I have no... This feels like... This feels more in line with an Assassin's Creed movie than the actual Assassin's Creed movie. Although I have no idea what time period this takes place in. Seriously! What year is it? What, for you and me? This is not enough. What year is this? Is this like a dystopian future? What is going on in this movie? What is going on in this movie? I have no idea what's going on in this movie. Uh, this is going to be a hot mess to sit through. So we'll see how that turns out by the end. I have no idea. This could be fun bad or it could just be an absolute train wreck. But I'll let you know either way. And then expanding wide. First up, we've got The Front Runner starring Hugh Jackman. Uh, as the disgraced politician... What was it? Uh, I'll, I'll, it'll say in the trailer. I forget off the top of my head. But it looked good for the last time I saw the trailer. Let's take a look at the international trailer for this. Nice Columbia Pictures classic logo. I've never known a guy more talented at untangling politics so that anyone can understand. Gary Hart. It is a gift, and he wants to share that with people. Hart is pushing groundbreaking reforms on education and foreign policy. I want you to think about the opportunity that we have right now. With the ideas and vision to take America into the 21st century. And the cost to this great country if we squander it. Based on the true story. I came here today to talk to you about America's future. He had the experience. Ideas have power. Ideas are what this election is all about. He had the momentum. He had no idea what was coming. Do you feel like you have a traditional marriage? From the director of Judo and Up in the Air. And thank you for smoking. I'm surprised I didn't use that one. The one thing I ever asked was don't embarrass me. Get sex with that woman. Can't be serious. There's no need for that. Did you think you owe it to us to be forced? Oh, yeah. You're running for president. Oh, Bill Burr. I didn't realize that was Bill Burr. I know full well what my responsibilities are. Do you know yours? Four stars from The Guardian. being written right now. There is no story. Womenizing lies. An Oscar-worthy performance from Hugh Jackman via Deadline. One of the best performances of his career, Playlist. Academy Award nominee Hugh Jackman. Based on the untold true story of the groundbreaking president that never was. Yeah, J.K. Simmons is in this too, by the way, as the campaign manager, the front runner. Yeah, uh, Jason Reitman is um, directing this movie. I think he's writing. I don't know if he wrote it or not, but this is his latest movie, and whoo, uh, this will be interesting. I hope it stick. I hope it tell sticks to the truth. That didn't that it doesn't feel a need to um, make up anything to kind of add take up artistic license or anything like that. I know biopics have a have a constant. Uh, need to do that for artist for uh streamlining reasons i hope it just sticks to what happened because i feel like that's way more interesting and way more compelling if you're able to do that and make a good movie but yeah uh this and the it's ironic that in the era where 
all of the scandal that should have de- that have derailed presidents before just just completely bounced off of their current president that here is a man who probably could have been one of our best presidents and was taken down by the same things that ha- that our current president has done in spades and yet he gets a pass it's it really is kind of, it, it, it is an ironic state of affairs that what brought down a, a promising presidential candidate in 1988 was complete was compl- did nothing for our current president and i think that's kind of why this story is getting told cuz the reminder that hey this is what used to happen when when presidential candidates were immo- were considered immoral or uh you know out, act, acted in a way that was untrustworthy meanwhile <laughs> so I have no, you know, I have no doubt that that's kind of the impetus for wanting to tell the story of Gary Hart in this day and age. And I'm curious to see if, what happened to him. I hope they reveal what happened to Gary Hart after his failed presidential run, and if he tr- had stayed private or if he tried to do more. He tried to, you know, lead his. Um, like, was he forever ruined, or was he able to at least try to do some good in the in the private, you know, in, in private, away from the public eye? So, yeah, we'll see when that comes out. And then lastly, a big premiere this week was uh, Green Book, and it's supposed to expand wide next over Thanksgiving. So let's take a look at that trailer. Yeah. Hey, Viggo Mortensen, it's been a while since I've seen you in, a, in, a, in, a, in the theaters. I feel like he's, been, he's kind of been stuck doing indie dramas. Teamed up with Marshal Ali. Public relations. He's he's got a decent uh, kind of Jersey Italian accent going on. He's like he's like he's almost like from Brooklyn or something. <laughs> Inspired by a true story. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right. <laughs> God, he's such a dungus. We'll be interacting with some of the wealthiest people in the country. It is my feeling that your diction Oof. could use some finessing. <laughs> because you can do better, Mr. Balalonga. Great, great soundtrack, too. Play the piano. He's like a genius, I think. Come on, take it I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. I love Viggo Mortensen so much. Smile and shake their hands like that. Because it takes courage to change people's hearts. This Thanksgiving. What are you doing? A lot of May I? Dear Dolores, sometimes you remind me of a house. You know this is pathetic, right? Put this down. The distance between us is breaking my spirit. Falling in love with you was the easiest thing I've ever done. Yes, kiss the kids. That's like clinging a cowbell at the end of Shaka which is seven. That's good. It's perfect, Tony. Oh, Academy Award nominee Viggo Mortensen. You never win with violence. You only win when you maintain your dignity. You don't know your own people. You, Mr. Big Shot, doing concerts for rich people. So if I'm not black enough, and if I'm not white enough, then tell me, Tony, what am I? Academy Award winner, Marshala Ali. You sound like Beethoven. Green Book. What do we do about the bones? We do this. <laughs> I like that ending. The ending of this trailer too. Pick it up, Tony. Squirrels would eat it anyway. It <laughs> it's like, hey, 
No, give a hoot, don't pollute. <laughs> it's a nice little touch at the end of this trailer. I really love uh, Marshal Ali. What was the other thing he's supposed to be in? He, no, he's going to be the bad guy in uh, Battle Angel Alita. Alita Battle Angel. At, he's so, he's gonna be, he has quickly become the best actor of our time. You know, he's kind of quick, quick, so quickly ri- risen up in the ranks of just iconic actors, and I couldn't be happier for him because the dude has talent, and he's continued his agents. And managers have consistently helped him get iconic roles that even in sillier movie, you know, even in like fluff media like um, Luke Cage on Netflix, Alita Battle Angel, even when he's in quote unquote silly movies, he brings gravitas with him wherever he goes. And I think that's the kind of the key that. He's not picking projects that are that he can't bring something to. Luke Cage, there was already something there. Alita Battle Angel, there all there seems to be something there, or else he wouldn't be there. Like I get the feeling that he wouldn't be there if he didn't need to be. Like if he didn't feel a desire to be there. And here you've got him as a pianist who's trying to do a tour of the Deep South. He's a very refined, um, well-educated, sort of well-to-do. Um, upper class man and he's kind of be kind of get, you know kind of learning more about being down to earth thanks to this lower class sort of um you know uh, kind of affable bodyguard bodyguard that is escorting him around i I'm, I'm hope i'm hopeful it's good i hear good things so we'll see um come next come thanksgiving how it turns out that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to whitelist us on your ad blocker and favorite us in your favorite links. If you want to listen through the website, uh, you can, you'll get new episodes every Monday. And then you can always check out all of our other fine programming, uh, Living, in, Living in the Stacks. Uh, we'll be out next week, and then there's a major announcement when it, uh, with that one. So, uh, so stay tuned next Tuesday for that one. Uh, Mike is still currently um, dealing with the you know dealing with the aftermath of the California fires. Uh, so no Monday day for the time being. We're on a we're on a, a hiatus until he can you know until he can get to a, a a sense of stability again. And I wish him the best of luck. And all of and my thoughts are with him because dude's a great guy. I love doing Monday day with him, and I can't wait to do it again. I just and it's just sad that it took that this is that it, it you know that, that this is keeping us from doing what uh, doing a pod, doing a show that we love. And uh, and my hearts go out to the other residents of California that are suffering because of it as well. And you know, keep your thought. You know, send, send help where you can, and get, you know, keep keep them in your thoughts, and keep them. You know, and and keep and make sure that they're that you're keeping up to date, and that they're taken care of as well. We don't want we don't want people who are suffering from these natural disasters to go forgotten. And. Anyway, uh, you can also check out all of Donna's stuff uh, through Snarkcast, and I believe uh, Vanessa is doing, still doing uh, Odd Vegas. Um, I still we get more people checking out Fan of the Podcast, and sh- and she and I have haven't done that in forever. I f- I feel like we need to get back on that because I know um, Max from Living in the Stacks wants to do uh, Love Never Dies, <laughs> and I feel like that would be a great one to start back up on. So we'll we'll see about that. Um, we'll keep you in the loop if anything changes with that. 
Uh, and of course, uh, if you want to listen through your mobile devices, through your various other podcast providers, just take a look for Popcorn Junkie. And if you see my orange mug chopping on popcorn, staring at the movies, then you'll probably then you then you should have the right feed. Uh, we're on iTunes, Google Play. Freaker, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever your fine podcasts are. I'm trying to get myself added to Podbean, but unfortunately, it, given the amount of episodes that I have, I, I get, uh, there's no way to add myself to Podbean for the foreseeable future. Um, we'll see if that changes, uh, but for right now, we're, we're sticking with what we got. And of course, you can always... Uh, uh, help the podcast out by donating to us through patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. There's an array of original content made specifically for Patreon users, and there's, a, there's an entire tier for for supporters who want to help out the podcast and be a part of the production quality of it. So if you want to help out the podcast, and, you, and all, all you, all you got to do is donate as little a dollar of as little as a dollar a month, and you get access to all the reward tiers. You can do so at patreoncom popcornjunkie. and then uh, you can also share us on social. Be, be sure to like, like, comment, and subscribe. God. Damn it! I keep forgetting. I keep thinking of YouTube. Uh, but be sure to fi- give us a five star rating and review, and share us on your various social media platforms. Uh, our social media home for Popcorn Junkie is Facebook.com/slash/PopcornJunkie. That's where all the major announcements are going to be, and I hopefully have we'll have one by the but you know before year's end about a project I've been working on, and then. Uh, you know, you can also check us out on Twitter. I'm at Corn Junkie Pod, and you can check out my uh, much along for Instant Family, as well as my trailer talks for all the new trailers that come out. I'm hoping to try to 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 tie that into um, to uh, Stardust as well. By the way, you can check me out on Stardust. Uh, I mean, you can Instagram uh, pop, at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. And uh, then, of course, I'm on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. And there you can see my reactions to the new releases that I check out, as well as the older movies that I watch. So you can see my reactions to all the Harry Potter movies, and as well as Widows and Instant Family and uh, A Private War. And then you can all, you'll can you be able to check out my uh, reactions to the new releases before next week's episode. And I'm hopefully going to try and do some more trailers I think I'll, I think every day I'll try to do a trailer. Um, I'll take a look at what the newest trailers are, react to them. That way I can keep content going out every single day when I'm not, whether or not I'm seeing a new movie, or that way I can. That way I'm continually being a part of that pot that app because I love it. Uh, also check out. Um, if you're going to check out uh, Stardust, I highly recommend the Internet's other John Bailey, epic voice guy. He is the king of of Stardust as far as I'm concerned. His reactions are the best. They have they have the highest production quality from what I've seen. I cannot I recommend him enough. He is amazing. He's got insight. He's funny. He's got he puts a lot of effort into him. He is doing the best with the Stardust app that the that you're able to do in my opinion. And of course you can always check out other fine people. The guys from Double Toasted are on there. You've got the guy the Schmoe Snow guys. You've got um uh Kaylin Saucer was on there for our Mars girl uh, Sacedo, uh, Mars Girl, Mars Girl was on there for a hot second, I don't know if she's still hanging out, uh, yeah, see if you, see if you can find, you know, your favorite, uh, movie reviewers on there, and if you, and if not, you can join the other fine people on Stardust and share your own thoughts, do you have thoughts on trailers, do you have thoughts on movies, do you have thoughts on TV shows, share your reaction to these things and see what other people are saying, come join us on Stardust, we're having a lot of fun, and we, and you should too. 
And then lastly, uh, if you have any feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, rebuttals, commentary, do you, do you agree with me on certain things about the Harry Potter universe? What are your ideas? Did I miss something that you think I should have talked about? I want to do an audience feedback segment, but the only way I can do that is if you, the audience, uh, and, you know, speak, reach out to me and let me know what your thoughts are. I want, to, I want to showcase your thoughts as well as mine. That's the only, that, that way we have a much more well-rounded uh, discussion about these movies. And that way having that diverse group of opinions makes the conversation more interesting. So yes, if you have thoughts, they don't have to be in agreement with me. They can be in disagreement with me. As long as you have a coherent and meaningful discussion that you want to have about these movies, I am down. Just let me know in the message that you want me to share this on the podcast. Otherwise, I'll simply paraphrase it. So share in the message that I, that I gave you permission to share this on the podcast. I will read it out and and um, reply. I'll reply to you both. Uh, I, I, and then I'll reply to you on the next episode. Otherwise, I'll just reply to you privately and I can discuss the conversation we have on the podcast uh, without giving any names. But if you want to be featured on the podcast as part of the feedback, you have to let me know in the message. So if you have your own thoughts and opinions and you want to share them with me and you want me to relay those, then be sure to send those to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to share them with the rest of the, uh, to, to anybody who is listening here. And I think that'll do it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And if you'll excuse me, it's time it's time for me to go pet my Evie. Because Evie's the cutest. Evie's the best. So is Pikachu. Anyway, uh, I'm going to jo- go enjoy some Let's Go Pikachu and Evie. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Good. I think it's a great starting point. I think Christopher Columbus was the perfect choice to, uh, well, Chris Columbus, uh, not to confuse him with the, you know, uh, mass murderer and war criminal. Uh, I guess he wasn't a war criminal because he didn't fight in any wars. But yeah, the, uh, you know, history, one of history's greatest monsters, Christopher Columbus. No, the director of kids movies, Chris Columbus. Anyway, cut all this out, damn it. <laughs> Look up Nafio. Look up nephew.ev. I don't know why. I've got Evie on the brain, man.